back in 2021 that we launched Project Bijou. And our aim was, it was pretty humble, really. And it was simply to you know, encourage a sharing of stories and of experiences around data and, and how it really does impact us and our lives today. And in turn, we wanted to try and encourage a better understanding of how we can all play a part, however big or small that part may be, in ensuring and striving for better outcomes in this data-driven world that we find ourselves in. And conversations around these impacts have really become a lot more pressing, I think, lately, and we're certainly seeing a lot more public discourse in this area. And this discourse is, I think, really critical. And there is a wealth of brilliant people working in this area. Thank goodness that there is. Um, and it's so wonderful to be able to have an opportunity to you know, highlight some of the work that they do and celebrate some of the work that, that they do. And we couldn't quite believe last year that Dr. Susie Allegre agreed to present our inaugural Bijou lecture. But I think it does point to the fact that these are shared issues and there are shared concerns. And there's a shared desire, I think, uh, to work together better for a less dystopic future. And we are nothing if not ambitious. And I'm so thrilled that we have yet again got a contributor of such high calibre for this year's talk. Now, those that know me will know that I'm a bit of a bookworm. You know, there's so much information out there uh, these days, but I find that books allow you know, the author uh, and of course the reader to get beyond some of the noise, some of the sound bites. You know, it gives us a chance for some really thoughtful, reflective considerations of these increasingly complex issues. And I came across a book uh, recently, a newly published book called uh, Beyond Data, Reclaiming Human Rights at the Dawn of the Metaverse. And the author, Elizabeth Ranieris, is one of the leading experts in this field. And I, of course, ordered the book as soon as it was published. I have a habit of doing that with new books. You know, I read a lot. I love reading and I try to learn from what I read. Um, but occasionally you, you come across something that really does stop you in your tracks when you read it. And this happened to me with this book. You know, chapter one starts, for more than 50 years, we've been so busy protecting data that we've largely forgotten to protect people. And for someone who spent their entire professional life working in data protection, reading that really hit me. It really made me think. We, of course, need to understand the legal framework that sits around data. But perhaps it's a bit easy to allow that to take our focus away from what really matters, that what happens to data is what happens to people, that this is not always about spreadsheets and databases. It's about us. And Renieris brings such a beautiful clarity to that point. And I think it goes to the very heart of, of our lives today and tomorrow and what we're trying to do here at the authority. So it is an enormous privilege and very, very exciting to welcome her to the Bijou Lecture for 2023. Hello, I'm Elizabeth Ranieris, and it's an honor to deliver this year's Bijou Lecture. Before I properly introduce myself, I want to thank Commissioner Martins and the Office of the Data Protection Authority for inviting me to share some thoughts with you as we approach the five-year anniversary of the GDPR's application, and as we enter a new age of AI. By way of introduction, I'm a data protection and privacy lawyer with cross-border experience, having practiced in the US, the UK, and the Middle East. 
Through my consultancy, Hacky Lawyer, I work with clients around the world on confronting the thorniest law and policy challenges posed by emerging technologies. I'm also a part-time academic, currently a senior research associate at Oxford's Institute for Ethics and AI, and a senior fellow at the Center for International Governance Innovation, where my work focuses on the ethical and human rights implications of AI and machine learning, digital identity, and extended reality technologies. Perhaps most relevant for today's purposes, I'm also the author of a new book titled Beyond Data, Reclaiming Human Rights at the Dawn of the Metaverse from MIT Press, which will be the starting point for my discussion today. In my book, I argue that laws focused on data have never and will never effectively protect people. Instead, I advocate for an approach to technology governance based on a broader array of human rights and freedoms, well beyond what data protection, particularly in its current iteration, can offer. Here are five key points I'd like to make. First, we are obsessed with control over data. When we think about privacy today, many of us will reflect on our perceived lack of it at the hands of digital technologies, specifically the ways we are tracked and surveilled online through the digital breadcrumbs we leave behind as personal data. Companies like Facebook, Google, and Amazon, and concepts like surveillance capitalism or targeted advertising may come to mind. We may recount the seemingly endless stream of high-profile data breaches exposing consumer data, health data, or financial data, or scandals like Cambridge Analytica. After all, we are said to live in a data-driven world powered by big data in which data is the new oil and data is power. For some, this means that privacy is dead. For others, it means we must own or control our data to reclaim our privacy. Our laws are equally focused on controlling data, how it is collected, shared, stored, and otherwise processed. Laws that prescribe largely unread notices about how our data is used and often seek meaningless perfunctory consent to process it. Laws that require companies to keep our data secure and confidential from third parties while imposing few limits on how they handle it or what they do with it themselves. Landmark regulations like Europe's GDPR and copycat laws the world over set out data subject rights, the theoretical rights of individuals to access, correct, erase, and transfer their personal data from parties who process it, which can prove difficult to exercise and practice, while other jurisdictions, including the US, contemplate similar comprehensive privacy legislation. We seem to think that if we could just control our data, we could protect against technology-related harms and abuses. But privacy is much broader than mere control over data, which brings me to my second point. Privacy is a much broader and older concept rooted in constitutional and human rights law, one that I trace in my book to the UN General Assembly's adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948, declaring the right to privacy to be a fundamental human right. In the world wars, population censuses, national registration systems, and conscription systems for military service became commonplace in much of the Western world. This early organization of human life into databases, the trauma of two sequential world wars, and in particular the Nazis' racially motivated atrocities, helped cement international consensus around human rights and shape the values that formed modern day notions of privacy. As with national constitutions preceding it, international human rights law conceived of privacy as delimiting the boundaries of one's family, home, and correspondence in relation to interferences by the state. In other words, privacy was deemed necessary to maintain zones or spheres around the inner or private life of the individual, protect the individual's physical person, home, and family life, create boundaries that are foundational to the exercise and enjoyment of other fundamental rights and freedoms, protect individuals from discrimination and harassment, 
and ultimately defend the individual liberty and autonomy necessary for a fully functioning democracy. Advances in computing and network technologies in the second half of the 20th century would challenge these traditional notions of privacy, which before electronic or digital communication still typically required a physical interference or intrusion. The idea of data protection introduced in response, though derived from the human right to privacy, was much narrower and not intended to replace or supplant privacy altogether. Number three, modern data protection laws are based on an outdated view of the world. The earliest data protection laws in relation to digital databases emerged in the 1970s, in the early days of personal computers, a time when data about people was collected by known entities, typically governments, and stored in clearly delineated databases, both analog and digital, for clearly defined purposes. A world in which it was possible to map personal data flows at scale and to separate the online and offline environments. These laws hinged on the idea that with sufficient notice and transparency, individuals could meaningfully control the ways in which their data is accessed, used, shared, and processed for specific purposes. This original paradigm is still the prevailing approach codified in modern data protection and privacy laws, including the gold standard GDPR. But that world doesn't exist anymore. Instead, we live in an increasingly cyber-physical world in which data constitutes the built environment flowing through the vast web of Internet of Things devices, sensors, AI and machine learning systems, including deep learning and neural networks, and increasingly virtual augmented, mixed, and extended reality systems at an unprecedented scale and speed. A world in which it is increasingly impossible to separate online and offline environments. Data supply chains have become so complex and convoluted that few companies have a handle on the data they collect, store, or process, or can effectively map their own data flows. The idea that any single individual could exert any kind of meaningful control over their data in this environment is pure fantasy. And yet, our laws continue to propagate this view. Number four, privacy has become the handmaiden of tech-related harms and abuses. This gap between the world we live in today and the one presupposed by data protection laws leaves us vulnerable to a loss of privacy in its original sense, as well as deception, manipulation, discrimination, harassment, and more. It also allows companies to refashion the right to privacy in their own image as a technocratic exercise in the confidentiality and security of data. Until very recently, private actors have relied on largely ignored terms of service and privacy policies, as well as their asymmetrical bargaining power to exploit user, da user data. As these practices are challenged, they are increasingly embracing privacy-preserving or privacy-enhancing technologies. A wide array of technical means, tools, and approaches to help mitigate data privacy and security risks, such as the risk of revealing sensitive attributes present in a data set. Examples include homomorphic encryption, differential privacy, on-device machine learning, and synthetic data generation. But when privacy is reduced to the mere privacy, confidentiality, and security of data, there are virtually no limits to what companies can do or the activities they can undertake, as long as they safeguard and secure any data they process along the way. In practice, this distorted mathematical or technocratic notion of privacy vis-a-vis -vis data protection has incentivized dominant technology firms to bring more into their own ecosystems, deepen their vertical integration, and use privacy as a shield against competition, making us more vulnerable to control, manipulation, and exploitation by entities wielding unprecedented power. 
Data-centric legal frameworks are often too easy to circumvent as demonstrated by the use of synthetic data for purposes that would otherwise be impermissible with the use of personal data. The more that our laws continue to concentrate on requiring companies to protect the privacy and security of data, the more we forget to protect the privacy and security of people. As companies continue to find ways to move beyond data, so too must our approach to governing digital tools and technologies. Number five, we need an approach rooted in a broader set of human rights. As data comes to permeate everything, we are at risk of asking too much and too little of data protection. On the one hand, data protection has become a kind of panacea for harms wrought by technology, acting as a kind of broad sweeping, albeit ineffective tool for technology governance, far more than it was ever designed to do. In fact, as everything quickly becomes fused with data, we increasingly equate data protection or data privacy for my American friends with privacy more generally. This asks far too much of data protection. And at the same time, we are demanding too little. Our data-centric approach to technology governance has enabled dominant corporations to effectively reduce the once potent notion of privacy to a technical exercise in ensuring the security and confidentiality of data. Core data protection principles related to data, such as data minimization and integrity, have crowded out other core principles focused on lawfulness, fairness, and transparency towards people and the ultimate accountability of entities. In this way, privacy and the derivative right to data protection have grown divorced from the human rights framework from which they derive, and in turn, lost much of their efficacy and power. In fact, there are more than 30 fundamental human rights and freedoms that apply to our human experience, whether at the hands of digital technologies or otherwise. As the real and virtual worlds continue to blur, eroding neat binaries like online and offline, and as everything becomes infused with data, there will be no such thing as digital or data rights, only rights. So long as technology governance is predicated on data or specific technologies, it will be wielded and shaped by those who control both, namely powerful commercial interests. Only when technology governance is predicated on human rights, which attach by virtue of our humanity, will it be framed by human interests. In fact, the human rights framework offers us the only truly human-centric technology-neutral approach, and it is our best chance of moving beyond data. As with my book, I hope this conversation can help us shift the focus of technology governance away from data and back to what really matters, protecting people. Even as data protection practitioners and professionals, we can center people and their protection before concerns about data. Particularly as we enter into a new age of AI, we can return to core principles, demand more than the mere confidentiality and security of data, and acknowledge the limits of data protection where they exist, recognizing that just because something implicates data doesn't mean data protection is our only tool to govern it. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions. Elizabeth, thank you again for joining me. I wondered if we could just start by talking a little bit about the inspiration uh, behind your work, Beyond Data, uh, Reclaiming Human Rights at the Dawn of the Metaverse. Sure. Um, so I had several motivations for writing this book, uh, a combination of personal and professional ones. Um, so on the personal front, I talk in the preface of my book about uh, an experience that I had in university 
um, where a classmate effectively hacked into residential house directories and stole the university photos, uh, identity photos of female classmates um, and pit them against each other in this uh, contest of attractiveness <laughs> on a website called uh, facemash.com. Uh, and that's the origin of uh, the Facebook story. And that classmate was Mark Zuckerberg. And so um, it sort of planted the seed in me where I felt a real violation uh, of dignity and privacy and other things. And I think in part inspired my journey to become a data protection lawyer. Um, and then on the professional front, as I went on to practice uh, on three different continents, um, I grew increasingly sort of disillusioned and frustrated with, uh, with data protection as a means to address the types of harms that I felt um, at the hands of my classmate. And so there was this sort of interesting tension on, you know, the, the type of justice I was seeking and, and the limitations of what I felt my practice, uh, you know, what I was coming up against in my practice. Um, and then in academia, because I also, you know, have spent quite a bit of time in academia, um, I felt there was this singular focus on data when it came to technology governance. And often the conversation was very divorced from one about people or one about human rights more expansively. So it was really a combination of all those things that, um, that led me to, to this book. And that's really one of the things that really resonates with us is when you talk about that we need to go beyond data in order to protect people. Uh, why do you think there is such a disconnect between data protection and protecting people? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, personally, I think it's bad branding. So I personally think the term data protection you know, hasn't done us any favors. Uh, in the States, we'll sometimes call that data privacy. And of course, it suggests that that's about protecting, you know, the privacy of data. Um, and of course, in my book, I walk through how really the right to data protection is, is grounded, is rooted in the human right to privacy and was intended to protect people, really it was all about people at the start. Um, but it's certainly a misleading term that I think centers data. Um, I think there's also been an intentional campaign on the part of private actors, private sector, um, to really focus on data because it's something that's easier for them to, um, uh, it's easier to give the appearance of things sort of being in control, right? It's easier to secure uh, data, to protect the confidentiality of data um, while still doing anything they want with that data. And so uh, rather than focusing, for example, on, on actual human rights or people, you know, they're able to sort of use computational mathematical techniques and say the job is done. Um, and then I think, you know, the other important thing to note here is, is I think the, the chasm is because we are not our data. Um, so I think it's become sort of popular to equate ourselves with our data, our data selves. Um, but data is always going to be an imperfect representation or proxy for our lives. Um, we're more than what can be reduced to data. And I, as I explain in my book, there's a process of, you know, turning these, these aspects of our lives into data points through a process of datification. Um, but I outline the natural limits to that process. So as we're on the frontier of things like neurotechnologies, you know, there are limitations to what actually can be datafied in that sense. And similarly with emotion recognition or other sort of high-risk technologies. So I think it's this combination of um, uh, sort of getting distracted, right? By as increasing of everything becomes data, uh, we sort of lose sight of what the, the right to data protection was, was meant to protect in the first place. 
I, I really love what you say about bad branding because <laughs> one of the pains of my life as a comms person working in data protection, it's just the worst term. But I haven't been right. able to come up with something <laughs> that's uh, been employed, um, unfortunately, to replace that. But you talk, um, you go on to talk about shifting the conversation away from data centric framing towards a more expansive view, which is just what you've been talking about, uh, rooted in human rights. Do you get a sense that we're starting to see that shift now? Yes and no. I think it's it's a little too soon to tell. Um, so as I talk about in my book, you know, we have 30 plus fundamental human rights and freedoms. Um, but typically when we're talking about digital tools and technologies, uh, digital rights, things like that, two, two rights are sort of very prominent in that conversation, um, free expression and privacy. And I think, again, this comes from a focus on data, where if things are data or things are information, then there's a sort of natural impulse to view those two rights as um, the most important. But we're seeing, especially you know, with AI proliferating, um, we're seeing the conversation certainly shift to rights around uh, labor, rights around things that are more sort of economic, social, and cultural in nature, although typically not framed in that way, right? Um, but sort of more collective rights, um, concerns beyond just individual civil and political rights, um, which, which are the rights that include uh, uh, privacy and free expression. Um, I also think that technologies like AI are exposing the limits of data protection. So we're really seeing how um, things like data minimization or, or purpose limitation, what do they really mean with these systems, right? When they're built you know, by design, they're built by scraping the entirety of the web, <laughs> Uh, all this data that was obtained for other purposes, I mean, the starting point is inherently in tension with core data protection principles. So we're at this really difficult point, I think, in data protection where, you know, are we acknowledging the limits of these principles? Are we abandoning them entirely? Does that undermine what data protection is trying to do? Because I don't see any appetite to shut these things down. You know, of course, we had uh, the DPA in Italy sort of temporarily halting things like chat GPT, but um, I don't see in the long term any desire to really halt technological progress or, or stop these technologies entirely. And so we're going to have to grapple with what does data protection look like uh, in a world that's inherently sort of in tension with those core principles. And then I guess the other thing I would say is there may be a shift occurring, but I'm also concerned that we might be repeating some of the same mistakes um, we have with data protection in the AI context. So you know, very technology-specific laws, very focused on data, the algorithm, the model, rather than starting from the perspective of people uh, and human rights. And so I, I question how much those laws will withstand the test of time. Absolutely. And you, I mean, one of the challenges of a globalized economy is this idea of a borderless data-driven um, digital economy. And can the human rights framework that you discuss succeed without borders? Right. Yeah, and this is one of the biggest challenges we have to, um, you know, all technological advancement, increasingly these technologies become sort of borderless in, in some respects. In other ways, we do see this increasing fragmentation, especially geopolitically, you know, between the US, the UK, China, the EU. Um, we see efforts around data localization, data sovereignty. Um, so, there, so there is a tension between the sort of technological aspects, the, techn the, the nature of the technology being more decentralized and sort of border borderless, but governance mechanisms uh, actually leaning more towards this kind of fragmentation and localization. Um, you know, I think if anything has a hope of succeeding uh, across borders, it's governance predicated on the human rights framework, because 
you know, it's the closest thing we have to some kind of international consensus. It's not perfect. I talk about the limitations in my book. I talk about the fact that human rights are particularly precarious right now because of the geopolitical environment that we're in. Um, our institutions, you know, are very fragile. Um, but at the same time, you know, I can't think of anything else <laughs> um, that, that would be a better uh, starting point for, for global governance. So I personally believe that it's our best hope. And I think that now is really the time to reinvigorate and lean into our existing human rights uh, frameworks. And you wrote the book, um, I think you started, was it in 2020, sort of at the beginning of the pandemic? Right. And it feels very prescient. I mean, when you look at what's happening now with uh, artificial intelligence and it's triggered an unprecedented level of public engagement, um, do you think that we are entering a new sort of chapter in public consciousness? Like you talk about in your book, The Awakening of Public Consciousness. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think, so it's, um, you know, academic publishing is very slow. <laughs> and of course, I completed the manuscript long before uh, tools like ChatGPT were available uh, to people on the market. So uh, I couldn't directly address those types of generative technologies, for example, um, in my book. However, I'm feeling extremely vindicated <laughs> by what's happening now in the sense that um, it completely, to me, reaffirms my thesis, um, which is that if we just focus on the technocratic uh, protection of the security and confidentiality of data, we have no hope of governing <laughs> AI tools built on uh, uh, the way that they are on data. Um, and so I think that a more expansive human rights framework is our best hope here. And I do think, again, we're seeing some of a shift in the conversation, although it's not necessarily being framed in terms of human rights. Unfortunately, I'm seeing a lot of calls for you know, new governance frameworks, new laws, new agencies, uh, new oversight bodies, sort of throwing out everything <laughs> that we've built over the last you know, 50 to 75 years that could be very powerful. Um, and so I'm worried about this kind of policy obsolescence where we're continually reinventing the wheel rather than you know, reskilling existing authorities, um, upskilling, uh, again, the way that these technologies are built, right? They're not built from scratch. They take what exists and they continually refine and reiterate. Um, and I think that's really the way we should approach this from a governance standpoint, which is you know, to work with what we have, to fine tune it as we go. Um, and I think this is where data protection could be a lot more powerful. Um, at the same time, there's always this competition for resources. Now we have new regulators coming up online and we have to think about the sustainability of that. What's interesting about data protection is that sort of horizontal type of regulation as well, because right. it impacts on every single sector. But one of the things that we're trying to do, because we're well aware of the sort of limitations um, <laughs> that we have as a, as a small regulator in a small jurisdiction. Um, so with our project VG, what we want to do is create this um, cultural shift around how people's data is treated in any context. And do you think that a cultural shift can do more than legislation to create checks and balances for advanced technologies? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that will probably come before <laughs> uh, lots of regulations. And I think the zeitgeist has been the biggest driver. I think since, you know, Cambridge Analytica, uh, the great hack, subsequent sort of films and, and uh, things in popular culture, I think really have shifted the conversation and uh, certainly increased the demand for, you know, privacy and data protection. Um, and I think that's probably driven um, market outcomes more than the laws and regulations at times. And um, that's great because that means it can sort of mutually reinforce what um, data protection authorities are trying to do. You talk about reclaiming our power by remembering a time before data and imagining a future beyond it, which is quite a powerful um, uh, phrase. What does that look like to you? And where would we be 
in five years time if you could be in charge? I mean, it's, it's such a difficult thing to imagine, I think, particularly for people who have come of age, <laughs> you know, in the era of the internet, uh, in, a, in a world of data, you know, my peers and, and uh, sort of peer generations, I think, um, in my mind, it goes back to this, what was the genesis of all this, you know, what was the context for all this, the context was, again, heightened geopolitical tensions, you know, two great world wars, um, a sense of exasperation and um, but also hopefulness around an international consensus and fundamental things that we felt were core to kind of international peace and stability, one of them being this sort of notion of a private life. And so I think if we could if we could try and project into the future of what does that mean putting aside data, what would a private life look like? What are the things that we seek to protect in that way? Is it freedom of thought? You know, is it freedom of association? Is it free, is it these other rights and freedoms? Um, you know, we mentioned Susie Leger was a speaker in the series last year. I mean, I think those types of rights and freedoms are overlooked in this conversation, but they're critical to the, the interior life. And so, you know, the reason I have this subtitle in my book about the metaverse, and that's very tongue in cheek, is because, you know, if we're in a space where everything is, you know, connected, if everything's online and, and we're online all the time, and there's a pervasive sort of data stream flowing across uh, people and, and environments, um, you know, some people will say privacy is dead. I, I say privacy is, you know, completely um, revitalized in the sense of, again, what is the interior self in that context? So um, it's hard to say. I mean, we see how quickly things are moving. What will things look like in five years? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't want to make those predictions. But I think the best way that I can think about it is, again, putting data aside. What do, as an individual, what do I think I'm protecting as my interior life and, and my private self? So very much the, the one thing that you'd like to perhaps people take away from your book is to, to look at this issue within a much wider context. A much wider context and thinking about it um, separate and apart from the technology, working backwards to get to the technology, right? I think that's our mistake. We start from the technology and then that already narrows sort of the constraints and limits our imaginations rather than starting from the perspective of the human experience and working backwards to now how do we have to design and build our technology. Obviously, it's such a big discussion and such a huge, it has so many implications for humanity. But just to end on a slightly positive note, I mean, what inspires you? Who inspires you in this in this space? Yeah, I've been thinking about this because it's very easy, I think, to, uh, to lose hope in this space and to feel overwhelmed. Um, a lot has inspired me recently. Um, so I think, first and foremost, the women in particularly in AI and machine learning, who have been risking their lives and their reputations and their careers to speak out and warn us about these things um, long before it was in fashion to do so. I think it's really important to note that, particularly with the more recent whistleblowers that have come online. Um, I think the 150 plus workers in Nairobi who voted to unionize, who are um, core uh, to the whole AI um, system, providing services for companies like Facebook and TikTok, um, I think those types of sort of collective labor movements are really interesting and inspiring right now. Um, I think the data prote protection authorities, right? <laughs> I think people who are showing up to do the work under very resource limited constraints, um, but being willing to adapt and change um, to constantly evolving technologies. Um, and then young people who are resisting technology in different ways. And again, trying to sort of reestablish limits for themselves, um, I think is very inspiring it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you and just before we go is there anything that I haven't mentioned that you wouldn't mind um getting across 
I, I think we've covered a lot of ground um, and I think it's just to, to stay hopeful. <laughs> uh, and we're only human, right? We're not machines. So we can just do the best that we can. But thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Um, and I am really excited about this lecture series as well. So I hope lots of people tune in.